How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I think it really comes from this place of trust, right? Mm -hmm. I would never recommend anything that I didn't trust myself or to give to any members of my family. I've been vaccinated. I've been boosted. I do talk about how my family members have been boosted, how my close friends have been boosted. And I think Mm -hmm. those conversations are really important and really starting from the place of trust in medicine and trust in the people who are there to care for you. A lot of it comes down to understanding that we all have this responsibility to each other. Hi, I'm Dr. JT Tolentino, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking about COVID vaccines. So as you know, here on Modern Minorities, we are all about the COVID-19 vaccine. We've all gotten not one, not two, but three shots. And when it comes to global pandemics, we have to think about not just ourselves, but also our communities and our families. But much to the dismay of my parents, I am not a doctor. So this episode sponsor, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, asked us to enroll a professional doctor. <laughs> and since I'm pretty sure Sharon is also not a doctor, we figured we'd bring back a friend to the pod. Hey, JT. Hey, Robin. What's up? Why it's friend of the pod and our favorite doctor in Florida, Dr. Jonathan Tolentino, Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Miami. Wait, 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 Raman. Shouldn't your sister be your favorite doctor in Florida? Hmm, you raise a good point. Dr. JT Tolentino is our favorite doctor in Florida who's been on our podcast before. All right, I'll allow that. But it is worth noting that Robin's sister is a friend who happens to also be another amazing, fabulous doctor here in the great state of Florida. Okay, okay. So before I get myself into any more hot water, the reason we asked our pal JT back was because the last time around, we had such a great conversation about the importance of health equities and education. And honestly, we were just itching for an opportunity to have another conversation. And in case you hadn't heard, all the crazy things going on in the world, we are still in the middle of a global pandemic. (laughs) As of this recording, less than 70% of the US population is fully vaccinated. That's less than countries like Rwanda and Latvia, which is nuts. Wait, wait. So, Raman, I got to ask, how could you possibly know something like that? The New York Times COVID vaccination tracker, dude. Well, I mean, it is all the news that's fit to print. (laughs) For sure. Look, (laughs) uh, so I think a lot of us would think that things aren't where we want them to be. And look, things are opening back up and we're heading into the summer. But honestly, I'm not sure how we should feel about vaccination rates being where they are. So I don't know, JT, how should we feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. And and a lot of my patients and a lot of people who I talk to when it comes to COVID, it's a sense of cautious optimism, right? Because we know that vaccinations are helpful and we know that vaccinations are safe, but we're not at the rate that we really need to be when it comes to really protecting ourselves. And so that really comes down to what does it mean for future waves? And it always seems like we're going back and forth where there's some waves that are that are calming down and then a new wave comes through with new variants and what have you. And so what I usually really focus on is you have to protect yourself. And more importantly, you have to do things in a safe manner. So that includes masking in, in large groups, masking inside. That includes getting your vaccines I mean, and getting the recommended boosters, especially the second boosters for those that are currently approved for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like the guidance changes a lot or the scenarios change a lot. I think the analogy I was talking to a friend, it's like wearing a seatbelt. It's just like, why wouldn't you? 
Yeah, no, exactly. And as a physician, I still wear my mask in large groups. When I go into a supermarket, when I get into an Uber, when I get into an airplane, it really is about trying to understand where the risks are now. And the CDC has a really great tracking tool to really help you understand where the community prevalence is or where your particular community is when it comes to the pandemic to give you better guidance as to when is it absolutely safe to mask versus when is it not safe to mask. So currently right now, as of this recording, we know that, that COVID in the Northeast is actually increasing a fair amount. And so the CDC um, has provided really great guidance about which patients and which population should be wearing a mask in certain groups. But it's all about your own personal safety. And it's also about the safety about those who aren't vaccinated, who can't get vaccinated, or those who are at risk, even with vaccinations, from getting COVID-19 and potentially having complications from COVID-19. Well, I want to flip that question, JT. We're both relatively young, healthy guys, and I believe we were both vaccinated and boosted, but a lot of young people are just like, "Eh, I'm young, it's fine, whatever. Like, how do you respond to people who say something like that? So there's two ways I think about it. One is that we have this moral obligation, not only to ourselves, but to those who are the most vulnerable, whether it's anybody walking down the streets or whether it's our own parents or whether it's young infants or children, that we provide safe practices for ourselves in order to assure that we ourselves aren't getting sick, but then also that those who we really love and those who are the most vulnerable aren't getting sick and potentially having major complications from it. Yeah, it's funny. At the beginning of the pandemic, when we didn't have vaccines, a lot we were talking about immunocompromised older people. And mm-hmm. now that vaccines are out there, I feel like the world has opened up. But for me personally, I have a six-year-old who is vaccinated. But I also have a one-year-old who is not vaccinated because vaccines for kids under five haven't been approved. So my wife and I, were like constantly holding our breath. And and we're doing that for our family. But it's like, sometimes we do have to take our kid out. Yes. <laughs> like, it's not, not even like to go to a restaurant or something. Like, we literally have to take our kid to the pediatrician or we have to take him to daycare because we've got to work. <laughs> it's like... You got to live your that, life. That, yeah. And that that's why we're still holding our breath. And it's just like... That's why when we try to make sure we have to ask that awkward question when we see people, it's like, hey, we have a baby at home. Are you guys vaccinating our masks? Like, I feel like people aren't thinking about those other groups. That's the thing that frustrates me on a human level. Yeah. And I I think a lot of it comes down to understanding that we all have this responsibility to each other. This is how a high-functioning society works, where there's this mutual understanding that Our overall success and our individual success is based upon our ability to understand and respect each other's needs as well as each other's safety. And and I think this is one that can sometimes be the push and pull between what are individual responsibilities versus what are collective responsibilities. And that's tough. It's like you said about seatbelts or even when we think about impaired driving and and what have you that. Yeah, it's not just you in the car. Yeah. You could affect someone else or even if you choose not to wear a seatbelt. Honestly, if you pass away in a car accident because you weren't wearing a seatbelt, that affects your family. Yes, it, it totally affects your family. And we as human beings, we're, we're social beings and we naturally interact with each other because we need that interaction, not only with our families, but with our friends, with coworkers, with people out in, in, in the community. Everybody loves going to a great party and meeting new people. And that's part of the human experience. But how can we make sure that this human experience is as safe as possible? Because the worst thing in the world is to meet somebody and then potentially give them something that could be mild or could be potentially deadly. And what we don't know about each other when we first meet each other is what does COVID-19 going to do to you? I don't know what it's going to do to you if I've never met you before versus somebody who I know is immunocompromised or somebody who I know is elderly, who I know has reasons to potentially be scared of something that could be as potentially dangerous as COVID-19. If I've met you for the first time, I don't know that enough about you to be able to be able to provide that level of risk mitigation automatically. So the best way to actually be kind to each other and to respect each other is to really start thinking about how do we protect each other so that we're not giving each other COVID-19 inadvertently. Yeah, it it comes back to this social contract, this societal trust and doing the love thy neighbor, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And I, I know a lot of people are worried about the masks can prevent us from having those normal social interactions or that it's uncomfortable or that it it feels weird or they're just tired of it. We understand that there is mass fatigue. We understand that. But we also understand that 
this is still one of the safest ways to be able to actually provide that level of protection. So as until um, we are truly out of this pandemic, until we are truly at a point where we are the safest, vaccinations, masking really do help protect each other from a potentially deadly virus like COVID-19. And again, I think about our most vulnerable. I take care of babies. I was just recently on the newborn service, and it's really hard to know that that these infants who, you know, are just trying to feed and grow and do all the things that babies are supposed to do, like wake you up at two o'clock in the morning. You want them <laughs> to wake you up at two o'clock in the morning, not because they're sick, but because they just want to feed. And so I think especially for parents and for grandparents and loved ones that want to visit babies, the most important thing you can do is get vaccinated and to be fully vaccinated. Well, so I'm guessing that COVID-19 is affecting different communities and demographics differently. Like it's across the socioeconomic spectrum, but we know there's some correlations between certain communities, underrepresented groups, be it Black, Hispanic, Asian, et cetera. Like what are some of the disparities you're seeing and not just how the pandemic has been affecting those communities, but also, I hate to say it, vaccine hesitancy or vaccine adoption? Yeah, no, definitely. And we've seen it. It's borne out both in the clinic as well as in the literature. We know mm-hmm. that vaccine hesitancy has been one of the more prevalent issues that we as physicians have been managing. And we see this um, a great amount of disparities between our black and brown communities compared to white communities. Vaccine rates are much lower, especially the latest numbers are somewhere around 57, 60 percent of black individuals are fully vaccinated versus 85 percent of Asian Americans, for example, or 65% of white Americans. And that's a very stark discrepancy. And a lot of that is rooted, unfortunately, in a lot of the mistrust that currently exists in the healthcare system that's been long seated within the structures of medicine that Mm -hmm. many of us are still working to, to overcome and that efforts have been made to actually overcome a lot of these structures, especially when it comes to COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. Well, beyond obviously podcasts like this, but a real question is like, what do you say to those people? Like when when you meet someone, regardless of their demographic, but just someone in the community, in the clinic, I I guess the question is twofold. How do they express their hesitancy or even their reticence, right? Or in some case, antagonism against it. Or like, how how are people expressing it? And then how do you address those expressions? Yeah, so hesitancy comes in many different forms. One is they're just not sure. They're like, I, I just don't know enough about it. It just come on so quickly. It was developed very quickly, even though mRNA technologies have been around for quite some time. There's just this general distrust of medicine, and you get this mm-hmm. sense from the conversations. The other part that we do see is that COVID-19 is fairly prevalent, and we know that there's antibody de- evidence that COVID-19 has actually been circulating fairly widely in the communities and in children, and there's a sense that, well, if I've had COVID-19 before, I should be okay. And that I'm protected and there's no reason for me to get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And what we recommend as physicians is to, even if you've had COVID-19, that you should still be fully vaccinated if you've never been vaccinated before. What's the why when they ask you why? What do you tell them? So the one why, the, the one big one is we don't know how long that immunity is actually going to last. From previous 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 infection. We know that Mm -hmm. patients can still get COVID-19 again after Mm -hmm. an initial infection. Right. And Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel got it like twice in two weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and we and we do see that. Right. And we and, and we know that if you had the covid vaccine, the risk of you actually having a severe case of covid, if you do get covid after the vaccine is mm-hmm. um, much lower and mm-hmm. that you're less likely to get sick to, to go to the hospitalization, hospital. go to the hospital, yeah. go into ICU or what have you. And so. That's one thing that we that we I always emphasize. Even if you've had COVID before, we have new variants. We don't know what new variants are going to do, but we know that vaccines have shown that even with new variants, we can see decreased rates in hospitalizations. I think the other part that a lot of people are very have some hesitancy about is the frequency that we have to give boosters. And I think this mm-hmm. is the one where we're where medicine's learning a lot about COVID and that COVID has been a very tricky virus and that we mm-hmm. do need, at least right now, as we're trying to come out of this pandemic, some of these boosters to assure that we can actually maintain the level of protection that we need on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so I guess going back to your original question about overall hesitancy, I think it really comes from this, this place of trust. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us as physicians, we start with this sense of trust, trust not only in medicine, but trust in us as a physician. And Mm -hmm. I always start off with I would never recommend anything that I didn't trust myself. 
to, mm-hmm. to give to myself or to give to any members, members of my family. I've been vaccinated. I've been boosted. I don't qualify quite yet. I'm not quite of the age yet that will require <laughs> the second booster based upon normal risk. But I, I do talk about how my family members have been boosted. I do talk about how my close friends have also been boosted as well. And I think mm-hmm. those conversations are really important and really starting from the place of trust in medicine and trust in the people who are there to care for you, such as mm-hmm. the physicians and what have you, has been a really important way that I've been able to approach, especially some of the vaccine hesitancy. And I also really focus on really understanding where the hesitancy comes from. I think mm-hmm. when we give blanket statements of you should just get it. it, it or on it, the flip side, the shaming. Yes, right. Because focusing on shame or focusing on the sense of blanket requirement yeah requirement doesn't really help um, people to really understand what the risks are what the benefits are and really what I'm trying to do as a physician in trying to protect you from that standpoint and I always focus on for each individual patient these are the things that I'm worried about if you have like COPD, if you had diabetes, if you are immunocompromised, I'm just worried that you're going to end up in the ICU or that you're going to get one of the variants that could be potentially lethal for you. And my job as my obligation to you as a physician is to do everything I can to improve your quality of life and to sustain life in the best way possible. So I want to ask a question about hospitalization. Just And again, not necessarily looking for stats unless you've got them printed out, but like in your clinical experience, when you see people coming into the hospital, into the ICU because of COVID, what percentage of those people are vaccinated versus is unvaccinated? So especially during many of the other waves that we've seen, a good proportion of a vast majority of our patients weren't vaccinated when they're mm-hmm. in the hospital for those who got hospitalized. Now, it's true that we were seeing a good number of patients who come into clinic or in the community who got COVID who were vaccinated, but the mm-hmm. vast majority of our patients who were coming into the hospital for COVID-related mm-hmm. reasons were not vaccinated. And we always talk about vaccine-preventable diseases or, or anything that we can prevent a hospitalization for. And this is one, as a physician, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is something we could totally prevent it. If, yeah. if we had you all vaccinated in some way. And and I always think, what can I do as a physician to help get more of my patients to that point where they're comfortable with these vaccines? And I've now, had many patients after a hospitalization, after mm-hmm. they've had a terrible time in the hospital, come to me and like, I'm definitely getting the vaccine now. And, <laughs> and, and it's wonderful. And I'm like, I'm so glad yeah, they yeah. got there because uh-huh. at that point I focus on well, we're going to keep you out of the hospital for now on for COVID. I'm glad that you're out of the hospital. I'm glad you're doing better. I had a patient come off oxygen. He said it was the worst experience of his entire life. Mm-hmm. But now he's out. He's getting the vaccine. And for me, getting vaccinated is a win for future complications. Yeah. Well, I, I want to pivot that into boosters. So mm-hmm. look, it sounds like over time, vaccines, a lot of us got our, if we got the mRNA, we got the two shots, and then I got my booster. But what I've been reading, like over time, vaccines become less effective at preventing COVID. And is that the core justification for continued boosters? Yes, exactly. And a lot of it has to do with our understanding of maintenance of the antibody response, as well Mm -hmm. as our understanding of the clinical response to the vaccines. And a lot of this just has to do with how COVID variants have basically escaped the effectiveness of the prior vaccination. And, And this is where medicine is just continuing to catch up to a, a constantly evolving virus. And I think this is one that as we get, begin to understand the virus more and more, and we begin to understand how vaccines are, are going to play out, we'll be able to develop a better understanding of frequency of vaccine boosters and whether it will become a, almost like a seasonal vaccine, like the flu virus, uh, the yeah. flu vaccine. So is it fair to say, and I read the stats, that vaccinated adults without boosters are twice as likely to be hospitalized as those who have had their COVID boosters. Yes. So it's not just good enough to have your COVID vaccine. It's like, it's it's, it's not about being vaccinated, unvaccinated anymore. It's like, and I don't want to say requirement, but like, if you want to reduce the the likelihood of going to the hospital with COVID, 
get your booster. Yes. Because the numbers are stark, twice as likely. Twice, twice as likely. And we know that the booster does prevent you from going to the hospital. And mm -hmm. we know that, especially with the last Omicron surge, that those who have gotten boosted are less likely to have these complications and needs hospitalizations, needs ICU care. And I focus on this whenever my patients are asking me, should I get boosted? I've already had the vaccine. I've already gotten the two shots. And I'm like, and I usually just focus on yes, yes. If, if you want me <laughs> to prevent you from going to the emergency room and going to the hospital, hands down, yes, hands down. And it gives everybody pause, right? Because it's another shot. It's another injection. Yeah. But if I can prevent, if I can do just one day, if I can do one shot, yeah. And that prevents you from staying in the hospital five, six, seven days. That's a yeah. huge win. Anything, I, I think that's that's what we- Yeah, that's it, what it we seems pretty obvious to right? me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask another question. Kids, and yeah. less about boosters and just kids and vaccines. There's still COVID-19 vaccines for children five to 11 are safe and effective. I have a six-year-old. The minute they came online, <laughs> it was before she turned six, she was five. But the minute they came online, we're like, let's go. Let's let's get in line. And I was, it made me feel really good to see like a line around the block at the school <laughs> in my community <laughs> for that. My daughter wasn't too happy about getting the shot and a lot of bribery and ice cream had to happen. Yes, yes, shot, always. <laughs> yeah. uh, big ice cream, also a sponsor now. Are there still a lot of parents who aren't getting their five to 11-year-olds vaccinated and, and why? Yeah, so uh, there are. And I think a lot of that, some of the hesitation that we do see with, with children in vaccinations is one, that initial fear of giving our children a vaccine that hasn't been around for 30, 40, 50 years or what have you. And I understand that. I understand that hesitation. But I always focus on the fact with my patients and parents that this is a vaccine that has been tested rigorously, rigorously. And that yeah, it took so long for it to come out. Yeah, I would have liked to have had it sooner, but they did. And literally, even with kids under five, they're they're taking their time to test it before yes. they release. It. Yes, and this is part of the reason that with our pediatric patients and our children, that the rollout slowed down a lot because we knew that there is going to be this heightened sense of not only efficacy but also the heightened sense of safety. And we wanted to make sure the FDA and the CDC wanted to make sure that that this was going to be safe and it was going to be effective. The other part that I always focus on is that we know with COVID-19, while you will have children with mild disease, mild disease looks like a really bad flu. So mm -hmm. nobody wants the flu. And we also give the flu vaccine every year. But the other mm -hmm. part is, is we know that children do get the MISC, the multi-system inflammatory mm -hmm. um, disease that is not only scary, but then can um, bring a lot of morbidity and brings um, kids into the hospital. Yeah. Um, and, and we are seeing kids who, even after having mild disease, are still dealing with long COVID. I was actually talking to a And, and that, that scares me, man, because yeah. like, it's one thing, like long COVID scares me and Sharon. We talk about this a lot, like even off the podcast, like we talk about, we're information age workers, right? Yeah. Like, I need my brain to provide for my family. And the idea of long COVID impacting me is scary, but I've got a couple of decades of working life. I don't have my whole life in front of me. And like long COVID for kids just gives me pause. It's just, man, that scares me. It's it's super scary. I, I've, I actually have a colleague of mine who's dealing with it with her own child. Yeah. And her child and, has long COVID? Yeah. And wow. and it's and it's tough because when you hear a pediatrician or a fellow physician at a loss of how to manage their child's long COVID, their that this child. is something wow. that that we as physicians are thinking, how can we prevent this from happening? If, if we're still learning and understanding how to manage long COVID, we are still learning and understanding what what does it mean to have long COVID? How long are you going to have long COVID? Again, we've only had COVID around in medicine for the past two years or so. Yeah. And so we're still understanding what the long-term effects are. But if we can prevent more patients from actually having the potential complications of long COVID, that's a huge win. An absolutely huge win. And remember, if you get long COVID and you're like in your 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, you still have 40, 50, 60, 70 years left. And we're still thinking about what does that mean long term? How, what is it going to mean from a neurologic standpoint? What is it going to mean from a cardiac standpoint? What is it going to mean from a quality of life standpoint? Yeah, a quality of life. Like all of that impacts your, I hate to say your socioeconomic standing. We want what's best for our kids. I 
it's funny. My my son is about to turn one as of this recording, and my sister, one of my favorite doctors in Florida, <laughs> <laughs> your absolute favorite doctor from Florida. <laughs> yeah, my absolute favorite doctor in Florida who has not been on my podcast. She <laughs> she texted me and she was like, uh, "What can we get your son for his birthday?" And he's a kid. He he just wants food and you know, yeah, <laughs> to his sister's toys. But I I thought about it. What is my kid? My kid doesn't. He's one. It's fine. He gets a toy. He gets a book. And I was like, I want my kid to have a COVID vaccine. And my sister <laughs> laughed. And she's like, well, I can't do anything about that. And it's, it's there's like a two-edged sword to that statement. One, yeah, because we're testing this thing. We have to make sure it's safe before it's approved, right? For children, right. especially. So that's good. Like even as much as I want it yesterday for my child, we can't have it because we have to do the rigorous testing. And when the testing is approved and the CDC gives us the guidance, we're going to go. We'll be first in line. But the second piece, it comes back to the earlier topic. So that's all the reason that we have to be so careful. Like I was at an event for my daughter's school and most of the kids and most of the parents are vaccinated. And a parent asked why I was wearing a mask and why my daughter was still wearing a mask. I was like, well, because we have a one-year-old at home. And the dad was like, yeah, man, I get it. Yeah. And I just think it's like, we're all doing it for each other, I guess that's the point. Yeah. And it goes back to your entire argument about the social contract, right? So there's this real sense that we're doing it for each other, right? And we know that I'm healthy. And if I do get COVID, the chances of me of having initial complications, even long-term complications may be lower. I know that I don't know who I'm going to come in contact with. And, yeah. and not to like bring shame into like when you do get COVID and you accidentally infect somebody else. But if I know in, in my heart of hearts that I'm doing something to try to reduce that risk of actually mm-hmm. giving to somebody else, I think that effort and I think that actual act of trying to do something out of kindness and out of goodness for each other is probably- Even if you don't know the people. Right? If you don't know the people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I Very similar to many people where you are in New York, in Miami, many of us live in these high-rise condos, right? Mm-hmm. And wearing my mask, being vaccinated, I know that the elderly patients in my building or the mm-hmm. little infants in my building, I'm doing my best to protect them from COVID. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most important thing that we can do as we walk into this. And then from a more individual standpoint, I don't want to be in the ICU from COVID. I hope <laughs> you're selfish. Yeah. yeah. How dare you be so selfish? Because yes. <laughs> like the thing about it is that if you do get COVID and you're in the ICU in the hospital or what have you, it's not just you're in the hospital or you're in the ICU, but that's lost days from work. That's lost days from your friends and family. That's a unbelievably uncomfortable and very painful. And, and I think... And even with some of the medications and treatments that are out there, paloxavid and what have you, um, it, it doesn't necessarily, it's, while that's part of the treatment regimen that we think of, that's not necessarily the best way to prevent things from actually happening. And as physicians, as a primary care physician, and as a physician that works in the hospital, if I can prevent something, I'm going to do it. It's the same reason that we tell people to exercise and to have a healthy <laughs> diet, Right. Mm-hmm. Because we know that if we do that, we're going to prevent you from having diabetes and hypertension and heart mm-hmm. attacks and strokes and all those terrible things that we're all so worried about, right? We tell people to stop drinking alcohol in large amounts because we don't want you to end up having liver cancer or be- developing cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if somebody if somebody asks them about their general health, you're here for, for a physical and you're like, what should I do to stay healthy? I'm like, well, eat right, exercise, mm-hmm. get your vaccines. And that includes the COVID <laughs> vaccine. Yeah. And And, and it's funny because it's like so many of the before COVID and before the COVID vaccines, there was just a broader common sense societal acceptance of the other vaccines that we have to get. Again, I have two young children. So it's like this regimen of doctor visits and vaccines that we just do because we know what the alternative is. Uh, Or I hate to say we don't know what the alternative is. And it's great that we don't know what the alternative is (laughs) because we as a society have moved past that. We don't have we have a lot of these diseases that have been eradicated or mitigated because we've put these constructs for, for our societal health in place, for our community health in place. And right. it, it feels like, I don't want to say COVID's not going anywhere, but if it's here, what are the things we can do to mitigate? And I feel like vaccines is just like one of those no shit, no duck. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, no. not a doctor when I say that. Yeah, no, but it, but it's but it's true. We don't have polio outbreaks here in the United States and most of the Western world. We don't have yeah. 
big problems with H. influenza, which was actually the one of the major causes of, of severe meningitis. We have the chickenpox vaccine, and so we don't see chickenpox as, as much. When I was a kid, I got chickenpox, and yeah, before yeah. the vaccine was out now, we don't see as much chickenpox, which is great. And what's interesting about, for example, the chickenpox vaccine is that while most of us were worried about chickenpox from the skin and the itchiness, and, and yeah. I don't know if you ever had chickenpox yourself, but what we worry about as physicians, and this is one of the things that we were worried about the most, is that it can cause you can have chickenpox pneumonia and wow. that's a really tough on um, clinical state to be in and there's all kinds of complications you get from chickenpox and so many of these vaccines whether it's covid whether it's chickenpox whether it's tetanus nobody wants tetanus it's all i would like to keep my arms on yes yes i want to keep <laughs> I, I don't want my entire body to start spasming all over the place so those yeah, are the, yeah. those are the simple things in life but it's really about trying to prevent the diseases because uh, modern medicine has been able to actually give us this amazing gift of being able to, to find a technique to prevent many of these viruses and diseases that for decades and for centuries caused early death or caused early morbidity or worsening quality of life. And right. those are the things that we've been able to actually develop to, in order to maximize our quality of life as human beings. And that's like the overall big arching picture when we think about vaccines. And now, a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. What? We've made it, dude. I mean, I love all of our sponsors equally, but I love some more equally. <laughs> yeah, Sharon. Not only is this sponsor a big deal, it's actually about a topic that you and I are both super, super passionate about, COVID prevention. Spring is here and summer is just around the corner, so we want everyone to be social, be safe, and be boosted. Yeah, we're more than two years in, and as a country, we're still dealing with COVID-19. This is something we can't help but keep in mind in our day-to-day -day lives at home and work, especially for those of us with immunocompromised people in our lives, our kids, our parents, and even all of our friends' kids and parents. And we want to make sure all of you, our super smart, savvy, and good-looking listeners of this pod, are vaccinated and boosted. And that you're encouraging all of the folks in your lives to do so, too. We can honor our AANHPI heritage communities and families today by getting vaccinated for a safer tomorrow. We're talking about making sure we're all vaccinated and boosted. For serious, look, vaccinations greatly reduce your chance of having COVID symptoms like fatigue, pain, and memory problems that last for months. You know, beyond getting sick, long COVID is one of the COVID symptoms that really concerns me. I can barely keep everything going as it is. COVID is serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we are both parents with young kids and aging parents, so COVID is no joke. So we all have to do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and the communities we work and live in. The CDC recommends vaccination for those age 5 or older, and boosters for everyone who's vaccinated age 12 or older. Getting vaccinated and boosted adds an extra layer of confidence to your social life, over time, vaccines may become less effective at preventing COVID. Vaccinated adults without boosters are twice as likely to be hospitalized as those who have had COVID boosters. Protect your tomorrow with a vaccine today. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective, and free. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. So be safe, be vaccinated, be boosted. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. And now, back to our show. I want to pivot the conversation in two different directions. One, we just spent a lot of time talking about technology. Mm -hmm. Vac vaccines feel like this, and I'm not, I'm not a religious man, but like, it's a miracle of science. Wow. Yay, science, right? So yeah. cool. The flip side of technology, where does a lot of this vaccine hesitancy come from? Information the information people consume, where people are getting their information. Yeah. <laughs> Podcasts? No, but like yeah. there's, <laughs> sorry, not sorry, too soon. Yeah. But like when people come in telling you all the reasons that they are hesitant, are there cases where they're telling you where they're getting their information or misinformation from? And what would be your clinical advice on where people should be seeking information about health decisions, decisions around vaccine efficacy, uh, safety, et cetera? Yeah. So when, when, so whenever not on Spotify, maybe yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when a parent comes into me and they're worried about vaccines, I always start off from the place of you're trying to do the right thing for your child. Yeah. And yeah. I completely understand. And as you mentioned before, we come, we're in an age where we have a lot of information and it takes a lot of time and effort 
um, to understand all the information, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it all comes from that we are trying to do the right thing for our children and for parents because we love our child, right? Mm -hmm. And I always start from there because it, it really helps me understand why there is this misinformation, why you're trying to find the right thing. And it comes from we don't want our children to get the wrong things. They don't want to do anything that's potentially bad. Because mm -hmm. then the second part, I always focus on is if um, with the with vaccine hesitancies, I start off with these are my recommendations. And these aren't recommendations because I heard about it from somewhere or that um, it's something that somebody once told me that I should say this. It, these are recommendations because I've studied this. This is something that I was trained in and that I've looked at the evidence for. And this is true for all the physicians that are out there that are giving vaccine evidence. But then the, the second part is, is where you're getting information, let me give you information that I use in, in order to make my decisions and some of the websites that I use. So for example, mm -hmm. um, using the CDC information, their website um, has lots of information about understanding the different types of vaccines that are out there, safety profiles and what have you. But then also the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Vaccine Information Center is a wonderful resource that actually has lots of information. And I tell parents, Look at this website. Again, this is a website made by experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia who study and develop these vaccines and have dedicated their entire life to assuring that vaccines are safe and effective. And to also look at this information and come back and let's have a conversation. Because I want to make sure that they understand where I'm coming from my information. And then in the end, I go back down to, I'm here for your child. And I would never suggest or recommend something that I wouldn't recommend to, to my own children, mm -hmm. to the children of my of my friends and family, or even to my parents or mm -hmm. to my sisters. So I think a lot of it comes down to trust mm -hmm. and trust in the system. And if there is mistrust, is a better understanding of where the information is coming from and where can I get you better information that's rooted in the evidence, that's rooted in a true understanding of how the vaccines are made and giving them those resources. But again, it, I think we're all trying to do the right thing for our child yeah. and for our children. So you're saying everything on the internet isn't true. Yeah, surprisingly <laughs> enough. I know, I know. It does come back trusted sources. It's like information literacy is something I think it's going to be one of those defining skills of our time it's like yes. there's a lot of stuff out there and you can get that self-fulfilling thing that speaks to what you want to hear versus the thing that's evidence and peer-reviewed yes of. and and i think it's hard it's because it's one it's 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 like anything else if it's outside of your natural field right if i mm -hmm. try to go in and read anything about an engine right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if somebody um, took this very complex information about an engine and then simplified it in a way but was wrong, I wouldn't have any idea. I would have no idea. So if somebody told me, put corn syrup in your engine and this is the best thing to do, I, I may do it because I just don't know. And this is where I always say, that's where you go to your experts, right? Then you bring it to, to your mechanic that you trust. And you yeah. said, am I supposed to put corn syrup in my engine? And he said, no, why would you do that? It's like, I don't know, I read it on the internet. It's like, oh, don't, don't. <laughs> Don't believe everything on the internet. And so then yeah. it goes down to, this is how it works. This is how you do it. This mm -hmm. is more importantly, you trust me on your car. It's like, yes, I trust you with my car. It's like, yeah. So I should just follow your recommendations. But more importantly, if you want to know more about it, you can read this. And that's an analogy to it. I think- It's a pretty good one. Yeah. But I think the heightened sense is, if this isn't our cars, this is our children, right? And so we want yeah. to be absolutely certain. And that's why if there is ever any hesitancy, reaching out to your pediatrician or to your family physician or med peace physician to really to understand and talk about your hesitancy or what areas you want to know more about, I think is your best bet to really come to a better decision point. That's great. So JT, since our last conversation, we introduced you to another friend of the pod, Stephen Wakabayashi. Yes. Over at the Yellow Glitter podcast. And you've been on his podcast not once, but twice. <laughs> you know, we're, we're now even with Stephen. Yes. It's never a competition. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We love all of our podcasters, but we love some more. <laughs> I, I guess the question I want to ask is beyond being a healthcare advocate, you are an advocate in the queer space when it comes yes. to health equities. And I, I, I literally, this is me exposing what I don't know. How are we seeing disparities with COVID and vaccine hesitation in the queer community? And I know it's not, you're not speaking for the entire queer community. Uh, the queer community is not a monolith, but it's, 
what are we seeing there? Because the same way we see a lot of hesitation in other underrepresented groups like black and brown communities for different reasons, what are we seeing play out in the queer community? And, and how are you guys addressing it as clinicians in, in the field? Yeah. So actually in the queer community, the, the rates have actually been really good. We've actually mm -hmm. had um, really good uptake within the queer community in terms of vaccines and there hasn't mm -hmm. been as much vaccine hesitancy associated with it. And I think it's been amplified based upon the science and really understanding where medicine has been in terms of really supporting the, uh, supporting the medicine. And I, and I think a lot of it has to do with a different cultural space in that the queer community has come out with medicine and trust in, and trust in, the, in, in the medical process. Unfortunately, I don't have enough data to be able to tell you how that breaks down racially or by identified race, but I know in general, the uptake has been much better. That's great. So before we wrap up, I guess, are there any other things you want to make sure our listeners are hearing? Because look, my guess is knowing our listeners, they're really smart, really good looking people, really well informed and great taste in podcasts. So I would hope that all of our listeners are vaccinated and boosted. But we all know people in our lives that are not. What would be some advice you might give them to how they need to be talking to people in their community or how they need to be thinking about the, the broader communities and families that they're in? Yeah. So I, I go back to how I approach vaccines in general or just treatments in general mm -hmm. is from a place of love and a mm -hmm. place of caring, right? So hesitancy has to do with distrust, right? Mm -hmm. And the more you push, the more you shame, the more you mm -hmm. actually deepen the mistrust. Mm -hmm. And so if you start with love, you start with a sense of mutual respect and mutual trust. Mm -hmm. And so I tell patients or I tell people in general when it comes to vaccine hesitancy is to not start with you should just get it. Why would you not do it? That's just, that's like you don't want to say that's a stupid decision ever. Right. Mm -hmm. You really mm -hmm. want to start off with what are you worried about? What are the things that you're concerned about? Where are you getting the information? But more importantly, I understand that you're really worried about this and you're really worried about this for your child. You're really worried about this for yourself or anyone else. And have you talked to your physician about this and where can I help you get more information about this? We do know that information that you receive is going to be integrated more if you trust and you yeah. trust the people that you get information from. And so with from loved ones, it is about that sense of being able to, to assure that that trust is still there when you're talking about this. And, you know, people will come around. People may ask questions and some people may not. But you always go back to I love them and I hope they trust me. And I, hopefully this is coming from a place of caring every single time. I love that it's rooted in trust and love. I'm reminded of a saying from business, it's more important to be effective than it is to be right. right? Yes. Yeah. I, I think uh, there's been a, a general sense of distrust has been increasing over the past several years, especially in medicine and especially in, in science. And I, I want to think that we're trying to reverse that again, and that we as physicians are hopefully doing a better job of communicating our concerns. Honestly, physicians, we're just worried. We're just really, really worried. One, we're worried that the pandemic is going to continue. Two, we're worried that our patients are going to get sicker. And then three is that we're worried that we don't have or that we're going to run out of options to get out of this pandemic. That's always our worry. And yeah. so we know that the only way that, that we can come out of it is this sense of collective understanding of how we get out of it. It's interesting. As I was preparing for this conversation last night, I read an article about Australia and what the differences were. And it's not just about the scientific outcomes, right? But it was all about... Australia's had a tenth of the cases and deaths loosely, and I'll, I'll link to the article in the show notes. But it comes back to those things you were talking about. It's like community trust and love and understanding in the society were the things that were already there and were espoused by the leaders in the medical and the scientific community and the political community and just communities in general with neighbor to neighbor. And I think a little bit more of that goes a long way. Oh, yeah. No, totally. I completely agree. So, JT, we've only got a few minutes left. I don't know. Do you think we should try for a COVID vaccine speed round? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I'm sure this won't get me in trouble at all. <laughs> at all. At all. So, JT, what is one surprising thing that happened during the past couple of years of this pandemic for you? So I think the most surprising thing about the pandemic actually was the speed at which 
we were actually able to produce an effective vaccine. Yeah, it's great. I remember at the beginning of this when this is like in, in the the early time when we were all scared out of our yeah. minds and we were Lysoling everything. You had people online like cheering on the vaccine manufacturers, like sports teams. And I was like, yeah. guys, come on. This is like clinical science. It's going to take five to 12 years. And maybe that's where some of the hesitancy came. Yeah. And man, like badass science tree, just like, I I was just like blown away at, at how, how fast and how effective it was. It was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, absolutely. It was amazing. What has been one of your favorite books, movies, TV shows with doctors that you relate to? Oh, uh, with doctors, definitely Scrubs. It's from the from the. <laughs> that 2000- is like the universal answer yes. from any doctor. <laughs> any physician will tell you, and it's because they honestly, it's because they understood. They really were able to communicate the psyche of a physician, the humor of a physician, and the worries and concerns of a physician. Anybody who's ever wondered, how's the physician thinking, um, especially in modern medicine, and from an honest perspective, I say watch the show. It's Mm -hmm. funny. It's sad. It's heartbreaking, yet it's heartwarming. I can't say any more uh, positive things about it beyond that because it's such a wonderful, wonderful show. Are you more uh, a JD or Turk guy? Who's your favorite Scrubs doctor? Oh, I'm totally a JD guy. It's yeah, it, uh, <laughs> that sense of anxiety. And it, because what, what JD had was this sense of imposter syndrome, even though he was a very competent and a very, a very good physician. And I think that sense of imposter syndrome that's common in physicians is very well encapsulated in that. You know, it's funny. My wife and I are constantly seeking comfort food of like shows to watch Uh, this is me being an old man i feel like there's too much or shows aren't like they used to be and we recently started a rewatch of 30 rock but man i think scrubs is one i think it would hold up really well for a rewatch yeah scrubs is one of those shows that still to this day on certain scenes still still make me tear up because i can i relate so well more even more so than Grey's anatomy and some of those other shows that are very drama filled scrubs gets me more than any other TV show because I was like, oh, I know exactly what that feels like. So we always like to ask a question about food and I was trying to figure out how do I like angle food? So I'm going to go to a dark place with this, but we talked a lot about long COVID and how scary that is. The other scary thing about COVID, and I say this as an Indian male, a food lover, was losing my sense of smell and taste. Yes, Like that's just freaks me out. So I guess the dark question to ask is, if you were to lose your sense of smell and taste, what would be the food? What makes you so afraid of losing the smell of the sense of smell and taste for? So actually, I was very worried about that, even during the pandemic. And the we used to always say you would smell food just to make sure you knew if you had asymptomatic COVID, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wouldn't make, make it asymptomatic anymore. But I think the thing that 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 brings me fear about food is because food in many of our cultures is such a central part of how we come together, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to lose that part of the sense of smell and taste takes away from that joy of coming together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing I worry, that scares me the most. So what's losing. the food you can't lose the smell of? Oh, gosh. It's, that so, one that keeps, it's my mom's chicken curry. That would keep me up at night if I lost that one. Yeah, no. Actually, it's that, it's that, it's that almost like sour, like, that, that sour smell you get and that very savory smell you get from chicken adobo, which oh, is yeah. the, with the chicken stew that the Filipinos make, that if I can't smell it anymore, that'd be so sad to me. So sad. <laughs> Another reason. Got to be vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, got to get vaccinated. No, yeah, that would scare me. <laughs> Who's someone out there in the healthcare community that you would want to talk to on a podcast? Oh, there's so many. There's so many out there. Many of us would say Fauci, just because part of me just wants to see what it's like to to, yeah. uh, to be there. On a but, high wire, man. Yeah. But actually, who would I want to actually talk to are actually some of the public health leaders at, at the state level, because they were the ones who were actually on the front lines from a public health standpoint, really thinking about how do I get my state through this? Mm-hmm. I know that many public health leaders have since stepped down because it's been mm-hmm. It's been a really trying time, mm-hmm. but I almost want to talk to them to see how it evolved for them and really seeing where our public health system has really triumphed and where we as a society, we have to think about how do we take care of each other better. Awesome. 
So last question, JT, what does being vaccinated mean for all of the modern minorities out there? Honestly, freedom. Because what it gives you this sense of is that not that you're ignoring the pandemic or not that you're ignoring that COVID exists or doesn't exist, right? It's mm-hmm. it's recognizing that freedom is about taking the context in which you're actually living in and actually able to live in it. Because I think if you deny that COVID is still an issue, you're not living in the reality of what we're seeing day in and day out. But if you can live within the reality that you're in, then you have this sense of freedom to be able to do the things you want to do, knowing that you are reducing your risks for things, for bad things. We always say that some of these things can be restricting or what have you. But I don't know if constantly chancing the potential of getting a potentially deadly disease at a high risk rate is really giving yourself freedom or you're just trying to cheat life constantly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's freedom. I really see freedom as being able to say, this is what I live in. This is what I'm going to do to reduce my risk so that I can do everything that I really wanted to do and do it in a way that I know is not only going to be safe for myself, but really safe for everybody that I love. That's great, man. Yeah, I think it's like, it's personal freedom, but it's community freedom. So we feel safe out there with other people. I'm going to carrot something from our friends at the Department of Health and Human Services, who brought us together for this conversation. It's, we can do this together. Like we can be social, we can be safe, but we have to be boosted. We have to be vaccinated for us to do it together and and the new times that we live in. Yeah. We can go back to the old ways back, way way back in the day where um, we didn't have rules, but we were fending for our lives constantly. And there's this constant Mm -hmm. sense of danger at all times. But we as humans have advanced in you know many, many ways, right? We can drive yeah. a car around. I could fly to Europe at any time that I really wanted to and do all those wonderful things. But doing it, knowing that I'm trying to be safe and I'm trying to do it so that I don't get anybody else sick and I'm not going to get myself sick, mm-hmm. I think is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. It comes know. back to I mean, something you were saying earlier. It, it all comes down to trust and love. That's why we can have nice things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't have nice things if you're constantly putting yourself in this weird, chaotic adventure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, JT, thank you, as always, for coming back. It's you remain among one of my favorite doctors in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) As long as I'm like top 24, I'm perfectly fine with that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for not just sharing your knowledge, but your experience and your stories. We really appreciate it, JT. Thank you so much. Of course. It It was a pleasure to be here. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.